0: Is loss, Philippians three eight. Hey, I like your mask. I think I, when I see that, I feel like I should kneel. Did everybody get, there was an American flag mask. All right. So anyway, actually, the proper response to the American flag by Americans is saluting. So, what I should do is salute. We're in Philippians chapter three, and it's some of the most awesome, uh, encouraging spiritual life material in the New Testament. Uh, It really is. It's that place in Philippians where you're reading along, you know, casually reading and you hit this and it, oh yeah, it's easy to preach. I wish I had, um, you know, an, an, an involved story for you to really set it up. But um, actually, you know me, I'm just going to bring the most conviction out of it that I possibly can because it is not just encouraging, it's incredibly convicting. The encouragement of Philippians 3 verses 8 through 15 is only available to you if you hook up the ground wire. The whole circuit of your spiritual life depends on this ground wire. It depends on one thing. And you gotta get this one thing together or you miss the whole point. And all the forgetting what lies behind, stretching forward toward that which is ahead, and, and you know advancing to that, pressing on in Christ. If you miss the ground wire, if you miss the point that he is leading out of verse seven with and leading into verse eight with, then it doesn't really apply to you. And that's where the conviction really has to start. What is Philippians about? If you're here first hour, feel free to respond if you know what Philippians is about. <laughs> That's awesome. It, 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 if you, I know some of you are like, I, I know, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> first few minutes of last hour we went through, and if you, if you want to catch the recording, if you didn't see that one, we summarized Philippians chapters one and two. To, to get us back into context, okay? What's Philippians about? It's the fellowship of the ministry of the gospel. That's the topic of Philippians. It's fellowship in the, together with God and with one another in the ministry of the gospel. That's, that's what this book is about. In our context, Paul has just warned us. Well, in verse one, he has commanded rejoicing in the Lord, and we could spend all week talking about how you rejoice in the Lord. And the key is the Lord. You got to be in the word to rejoice in the Lord. But then in verses two through seven, he says, look out for the opposition. There is opposition to the ministry of the gospel in this community of Judaizers who add to the gospel of the grace of God. And this is problem in Paul's day. It's a problem in our day. People that add something for you to do in the flesh in order to be saved. Something that must be added to simple faith, childlike faith in Christ. I would include baptismal regeneration in this category. People that say you need the water physically to save you so that the work, the act of you receiving baptism is itself in addition to to simple faith in Christ the way my theological mind works I think that's that's a problem do I believe in water baptism yes but it doesn't save you because salvation is only by grace and it's only through faith and the faith is not the 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 water it's the faith it's the believing but the water shows my faith right and so they're different faith is the faith and it isn't the, it isn't the act, the, the doing, the doing shows. And even James two, which is talking about the experience of the Christian life. It's talking about you walking in a life of faith rest. And James two is even asking whether someone's a Christian or not. It's telling Christians to walk by faith. In James two, if I'm showing you my faith by my works, then faith and works cannot be the same thing. And that's Ephesians two, eight and nine. By grace through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. What I'm saying is the Judaizers would add circumcision and the keeping of the law, the Mosaic law, to the spiritual life of the believer. And that's a big no-no according to the Apostle Paul. His first epistle, which we summarized early on in the Christian life of Paul, he says says it this way, Galatians chapter three, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith or literally the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being matured? Brought to spiritual completion, maturity. I Are you being perfected by the flesh? See, see he doesn't even allow for the rituals of, of God's law for coming to Israel. He doesn't allow that to be part of the normative spiritual life of the believer today. The, the flesh works of the Mosaic law do not mature you. So that idea, the, the third use of the law or whatever, that's an interesting theological suggestion, but it's not what what we read here in the text. Do we say that the law is bad or useless? No, no. All scripture is God breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Second Timothy 3.16 tells me how to relate to the word. It teaches me God's righteousness. But you don't keep a bunch of rules. And you don't do sacrifices and you don't do whatever the, the, the observances that God set up for Israel as your practices that are going to mature you in the spirit. it's not how it works. You started by faith, you proceed by grace through faith. Well, this is what Paul is doing in, uh, in our context. He's correcting the error of the Judaizers and warning the Philippians against them. Let's do it real quick. Beware the evil workers, the dogs, the mutilation. That's the false circumcision. It's people that are, that are misunderstanding what circumcision is. For we are the circumcision. We are the ones dedicated to the Lord. The ones who by the spirit of God are serving. Even those who are boasting in Christ Jesus and nowhere else. Those who have put no confidence in the flesh. See, this is why I say all is lost. Anything you have that is, is in competition with Jesus Christ as your sense of self, of glory, of purpose, of whatever, you need to get rid of it. It's the thing that's keeping you out of the mission. It's the thing that has you not on mission. So Paul is, is talking about his opponents. These are the people that are directly opposed to the gospel ministry. And so this Pharisaic thing, this Early Christian attack by people of Israel. It's, it's. listen carefully. We are, uh, we are very pro-Israel and Jewish evangelism is a high priority for us because these are God's beloved people, his chosen people, the apple of his eye. So when I talk about the people from Israel that are oppressing the church and rejecting the gospel and trying to deny it to others. Understand that in the context in which I mean it. And we, we say this with our hearts breaking as Paul does in Romans 9. Paul was the first of these people to try to destroy the church. And he did it with his persecution. A word we're going to see a lot in this context is dioko to pursue or to press on, or it could even mean to run after. Usually in the New Testament, that's talking about persecution, and it's a key word Paul uses for his persecution of the church. He was chasing the Christians down to kill them, basically, to imprison them and eventually kill them. And he wanted to destroy the church in its cradle. And God flipped him and made him not the destructor, the destroyer of the church, but its main promoter through the Gentile world. And it's one of the great ironies of the scriptures that the one who was most intent on destroying baby Christianity was the one who most promoted it and is most responsible even today in our own reading for its advance. But these same, uh, these people from the same background are now coming with a different message. It's a different group too, but there's a yes, Jesus, but also the law. Yes, Jesus, but also circumcision. Yes, Jesus, but this other Um, these other things. And you, you know, let's, let's line you up for surgery, gentlemen. And they're coming behind Paul and they're denying the gospel of grace that Paul is preaching. And that's Galatians chapter one. If anyone, the iron angel from heaven comes with a different gospel he's to be accursed. The gospel you've received of faith in Christ, that he died for your sins. It's the faith alone in Christ gospel. Anything else he says, that's a curse even the good things of the Mosaic law, the law is perfect and good and holy and righteous. When you understand, I mean, it is that, and you need to understand therefore how it applies. But Paul says, we are the true circumcision, the truly dedicated to God, because there's no confidence in us, except in Christ. There's nothing about the flesh that commends us. Although I might have confidence in the flesh. Now here's what he does. He's setting you up to understand the pressing on in Christ of three, eight through 15, by telling you all that he could, could claim as a boast. I might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he should be confident, I'm more circumcised on the eighth day from the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, according to the standard of the law of Pharisee, according to the standard of zeal, a persecutor of the church, according to the righteousness, which comes about by the law, not God's righteousness, the law cannot give you God's righteousness. The law, if the way they were trying to keep it, would only pr- produce um, a shoddy relative righteousness. And unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, says the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5. But according to the righteousness from the law, blameless. Does, Paul, does Saul of Tarsus need a savior? Yes. Could he claim pharisaic ascendancy without a savior? Yes. You see the other gospel in part. It's alive and well today. Not necessarily Jewish. It's everywhere. It's anything where man is going to, well, I mean, we're good enough. Any claim that we're basically good enough is this relative righteousness. And it's and the, the strange thing is that the law that God gave Israel to show man his poverty, to make us all broken and say, we need, we need a, a sacrifice. Somebody's going to have to cover us. This was now the basis for saying, yeah, we're basically good. We're good. Yeah. Lucky, lucky for y'all, we showed up the righteous ones. So this is my record. Now, I believe what this means. I believe this with all my heart. That the people coming behind Paul don't hold a candle to Paul's Jewish Bona fides. Bona fides bona fides. Fides. It's just not bona fide. We know that. All right. The people coming behind Paul with their Judaizing tendency, if it's, and I believe it is the rejection of faith alone to add faith in Christ with the circumcision and the other things of the flesh. They are, they are not really in the same class of being pharisaic that Paul is in. Paul would be the the teacher of these people. Saul of Tarsus. In his former days, he's the valedictorian. He's the tutor. And these guys are the knuckleheads that are having to repeat the second grade. I mean, these are the pikers. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, I don't even know. These guys don't even know what tribe they're from. <laughs> Right. I mean, I mean, if you really want the real deal, this is it. This, these guys are like retreads or something. And so I'm starting to really think Paul's, Paul's got a lot going on with uh, with this Pharisaic uh, Judaism. I mean, that makes me really want to listen to him. Right. I really need to listen to him because he's, he's got all the stuff down with the Mosaic law and, and, and he's, he knows how to keep the, the Pharisaic, oral law. He knows how to keep it blamelessly. He's, he negotiates all that. I mean, we, we should have Paul, Saul as our rabbi, right? And just as soon as you start thinking, okay, well, we found the right rabbi to follow. He says, forget it. But whatever things were gained to me, these I've regarded as worthless for the sake of Christ. He just gave you his resume to burn it publicly, basically. He said, All the things that I could claim and brag about are nothing. Whatever were a gain to me, I have to consider them worthless. Now, what does this do to our typical approach to self esteem? Everybody's got an ace in the hole everybody's got something that gives them an edge i mean this is the thing i i i i'm not the the best at everything but i mean i can do this he just cuts that right out from under you you don't have any legs to stand on he says there's nothing good about me but jesus there's nothing because anything that rises in my sense of self to be alongside him it's a counterfeit it's it's a it's a pretender I've regarded these things as worthless for the sake of Christ what discipline is necessary for you and me to be like Paul and to take all the things about us that there's a there's a community that'll look at your resume and say wow and you say even in that community where yeah you know I'm kind of a big deal it's rubbish. It's, it's nothing so that I can have Christ. What kind of discipline of mind does this require? See, this is the ground wire that gets you pressing on in Christ. This is the key to all the spiritual growth discussion that we're about to launch into verses eight through 15. It's when I say the ground wire in a circuit, If you don't have the ground, you don't have anything and it doesn't do anything except make everything work. I wanted to ask why that was. It made me a theologian. Because God, next question. If you don't get this down, if you don't get this, that it's only about Jesus Christ. And that's my only self-esteem. That's my only sense of, of, of boast. If we don't get that down, then we're. We're playing at Christianity. We're not living it. These words could sound bullying. If you're not, if you're not with what the scriptures say here. You're taking these people and they, they don't have much, but they've got something. You're taking it away from them. Saying that it's nothing because they have Christ and he's everything. It's not a bullying thing to do. It's the best thing anybody could ever do for us is to tell us the truth about our standing without him. What I bring is basically worthless for the sake of Christ. Now the discipline of mind is in the main verb, I have regarded. It's what I choose to think about my pursuits, about my accolades. Let's be careful about ambition here. I'm not proposing mediocrity. I'm not asking you to abandon all hope or ambition or desire to do great and wonderful things. We choose to go to the moon and do the hard things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Something like that. (laughs) Those were not inspired words. Even though you live in New England, those were not inspired words. Look. I'm not saying we need to be mediocre, quite the opposite. I'm saying mediocre Christianity is going to say, yes, it's all about Jesus, but I've also got the things that give me my edge. And Paul pioneers a path for us where we say, let it all go. And those that have been mediocre are like, oh good, where everybody's mediocre now. No, those who have been like Paul and have risen to the top in their fields They need to see in comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's worthless. And let God make something of you. Let God take what he wants out of you to make what he wants you to be. Now, for Paul to advance the interests of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only does he need to regard his accolades as worthless, he needs to actually forsake them because he cannot be the Pharisee of Pharisees and preach Christ and faith alone in Christ alone and the grace of God as he does all through his epistles. He can't be Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ and Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee. He has to let it go. They're they're at opposite objectives. But I think there's an application in here for you, which I've been trying to emphasize a lot right now. And it is you you and Jesus plus anything else is losing out on everything. But if you just have Jesus, then you have everything. And it's a constant thought process we have to return to. Remember verse one of chapter three. Do you remember what verse 1 commands you to do? In red, we put it on the screen, rejoice in the Lord. This is what I'm talking about. Why would I rejoice in the Lord? Because I have everything in Christ. Because of who He is. Because of what He's done and what He's doing. Whatever things were gained to me, these I have regarded as worthless for the sake of Christ. I think that I need a radical shift. I need to reject the culture completely on its version of self-esteem. Anything the psychological people tell me, Abraham Maslow and all these people, it's out the window. There is no self-actualization. There is baptism of the spirit into Christ. There is sharing the destiny of Jesus Christ, that he is glorified, exalted at the right hand of the father. And that's my position right now in him only because of his grace. And that's how I am to think of myself as a sinner saved by grace and exalted in the beloved. And if I'll think about myself that way, then whatever other things you could say that I had going on are irrelevant. Believers, this is the entry level. This is ground floor. Exalted at the right hand of the Father in Christ is ground floor to the mission. Until you will do this in your thinking, you're not going to be on mission. You're going to be on your mission to glorify you. But if we'll do this, just whatever claims I have to glory, I'm a competitive person. I learned early on in academics that if there was a competition involved, I was very motivated to win it academically. Two left hands, two right feet, very uncoordinated on the basketball court or the football field meant it was going to be academic competition. And I did well here and not well otherwise and found that seeing my name printed up high on the list was motivational. Helped me order my time and efforts. Brass ring, go for the go for the goal, baby. see, I had a problem of motivation. I was, looking, I was looking at the wrong objective when that was motivational for me. And I think there's a value to healthy competition. Don't get me wrong. But if that's what really motivates you, then you're not here where Paul is. Whatever things were gained to me, these I've regarded as worthless for the sake of Christ. It's the same thing we hear from the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter six. After all, this is the Christian life of Paul. Can you hold the place for me? Go to Matthew six, just very briefly. Some very applicable times, uh, applicable word for our times. I've been sharing with you in Matthew six quite a bit lately. Again, it's it's so foundational in the... um, platform of the Lord Jesus Christ and his earthly ministry, the Sermon on the Mount. And people say, you know, there's this huge distinction between Paul and Jesus and, and they don't understand how you square Matthew's calls to discipleship with Paul's calls to faith alone in Christ. And this is not hard at all. Matthew's writing to Christians who have already trusted in Christ as their savior, and they need to disciple up. That's what, that's the way these things relate. But listen to the platform of the Lord Jesus, who says, after teaching his disciples to pray, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. That's verse 16 of Matthew 6. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men. There it is. This is something they have a boast in that other people will value. And they're not thinking of God's valuation. They're thinking of the way people think of them. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. What? Their reward in full. Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. It's all about who is giving you the reward. If you want man's applause and approval and accolades, you can get them. But if you want the Lord's applause and accolades and approval, you're going to have to disregard everything else and just go after that. And be very careful that you just go after that. Verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. See, you don't show up all looking walking dead like zombie. Oh, I'm fasting. <sighs> no, you show up and, and they may notice that you're a little lighter But you don't look like you're you're not avoiding hygiene to to put on a fasty face. You're putting on you you took a shower so that your fast will not be noticed by men, but by your father who's in secret. And your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Does this mean we're not supposed to have a bank account? No, it means you're not supposed to treasure your bank account. It's about the attitude. It's about the heart. Where is your treasure? It's not about the physical money. It's about what you do with it. And I'll prove it in in what he says. He says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break into steel, for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. It's where you're thinking. It's where your heart is tending. Now listen to it. The eye is the lamp of the body so that if if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light, the eye, the thing that's to illuminate you is dark. The light in you is darkness. How great is the darkness? So what you're looking at will determine if you're illuminated. And so if you're looking at God, you're illuminated. If you're looking at things, darkness. And so store up your treasures in heaven. Does that that convey over into the physical bank account situation? It does, but that's not primarily what he's talking about. He's primarily talking about what you treasure. What are you spending your time, your money, your resources, your energy, your effort? What are you spending your life on is the question. Spend it on eternal currency so that it's stored up in heaven. And there your heart is where it belongs, focused on the things of God. And listen to what he says. No one can serve two masters for either. He will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Does it say you can't be wealthy? I mean, God is the most wealthy. Jesus is the heir, the one who inherits all things. Wealth in itself isn't the problem. What does he say? He didn't say you can't serve God and be wealthy. He says you cannot serve God and serve wealth. It's where your treasure is. It's what you're serving. This is the attitude. So does Paul not have his incredible Hebrew understanding of the Old Testament? After all that training and Gamaliel and all that he received, does he not have great insight into the Torah? No, he's using it. The dots are connecting. It's where the treasure is. It's where, it's where he has his value. It's in God. It's not in his great learning. Now, I have to, when I'm preaching Matthew 6, I have to remind you that everyone from the poorest person that you have ever seen, the guy at the right, no right turn on red, that's asking you for money, to the person that's too proud to ask you for money, but has a shopping cart that they've stolen with a bunch of junk in it because they want to have something in this life. Everybody on the planet is about to be corrected by you cannot serve God and wealth. This is not the, the, the sermon against the rich man. It's the sermon against the man who treasures anything but God. Listen to it because he, he, he takes you from you can't serve God and wealth to you serving Wealth by going after the necessities. Serving wealth. Jesus is a complicated preacher. Look at the shift he takes from verse 24 to verse 25. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body. What you'll put on is not the body more than food. The, sorry, the life more than food and the body more than clothing. He, he shifted. You can't serve God and wealth. So all the rich people are like, oh, the second house, huh? And he's not even talking about that now. He, he shifts over and says, you who are going to order your lives around whether you eat a meal or not. That's a, that is the use of wealth. It's the use of means. And it's not wrong to have a meal. He's saying, if that's your focus... If that's where your treasure is, that you just have the basic necessities, then you're still serving wealth. That's why, see, it's unfortunate, these little um, headings in my Bible, it says the cure for anxiety here. Like it breaks verse 24, 25. 25 starts with, for this reason. Jesus is, is absolutely the his material that he's teaching here is the seed out of which Paul's entire ministry grows in the gospel seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness he compares the birds to the people they don't god feeds the birds you're much more valuable than birds verse 27 Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. God clothes them better than the richest man you'd ever heard of, Solomon. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass, of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown to the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? See, you can't even make the excuse that, well, I can't, I'm not trying to be rich, but I have to serve wealth in the sense that I have to serve the basic subsistence for life instead of serving God. Jesus completely removes that excuse. So serving wealth is true for the wealthy person that doesn't really worry about whether he's going to eat, but it's also true for the subsistence living person that's just living, trying to make a living scrounge enough to feed the family one more meal. Either way, if you're living your life to serve the money instead of serve the God who is the source of all the provision, then you are missing it. You're wasting your life. And so he says, do not worry then saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care enough for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, says the King James. (laughs) All right. What am I doing here? The reasoning process, the rationale that the Lord Jesus just took us through is the same type of rationale that Paul is saying when he says, where is your treasure? Where is your sense of accolade? Paul had a lot of people really thinking highly of him, the people above him and below him. Everyone said he's the best of us. And he had his reward in full. And having run after Jesus now, he has completely rejected all of that. I've regarded it as worthless anything gained to me for the sake of Christ. And so it's the same type of rationale as the wealth rationale. Anything in competition with my focus, my devotion, my complete commitment to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that he would have me uh, do is Worthless. So it's all loss. But moreover, I regard all things to be loss. Zamion. Zamia. All things to be loss. I looked this word up in how it's used in the Septuagint, the Old Testament translation uh, into Greek, the Hebrew into Greek, always used for debt. Oh I'm sorry, for, for, for a fine. When somebody takes your money and says you owe you know, 50 bucks or whatever for this infraction, a fine. It's a fine. Meaning I had it and now it's been taken away. And what was before a positive is now uh, gone. I regard all things to be lost on account of the surpassing greatness of the personal relationship knowledge. That's my understanding of how he's using gnosis here of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I know Him. Not to know about Him. It doesn't just mean that I've trusted in Him. It's that this is my life, is to know Him. On account of whom? The all things, is the Greek. The all things I have suffered loss and in regard to be skubala, so that I may gain Christ. Could you check the pronunciation of that word there, Pastor Dave, skubala? Skubala. Not scubala, scubala, that's the way it's written in Greek. Some of you know that that's the bad word in the New Testament. I was taught by one of my favorite Greek professors that this word is equivalent to S H I T in English. Harold Honer said it. He didn't spell it, he wasn't in church. Oh, on Sunday. That wasn't the worst thing that was said in the halls of the institution I was in. Anyway, um, so I went and looked it up. Is this how this is used? Do you find this used in a vulgar sense? In the classic literature, I was able to find this word is generally just used for excrement. It's a common word for excrement. But let's make no no mistake. We're talking about human feces. The thing that uh, you want least to do with at all, ever. Ever. And uh, civilized people have often made it a habit to remove this as far from us as possible. We read in the Mosaic Law, the uh, the latrine protocols for a civilized people is to get this away from the camp and to protect the sanitation of the community and the health of the community by removing it far from us. The, uh, go- the good old seven-gallon toilet was a very... Uh, wonderful American thing that has been tragically replaced by this ridiculous um, thing that you have to, you, just with your toilet. If you have little kids or if you're you know, all that are about to get little kids, just buy a toilet auger now and have it on hand. You're going to need it. I once had to use a toilet auger on a commode in our kids' bathroom. It's the kids' bathroom. But it's really the bathroom that is not in the master bedroom, you know, the, the kids' bathroom. When adults come over to our house, we should probably bring them into the master. I go, just go in our bathroom. But anyway, um, I once had to use the, I learned all about the toilet auger because there was something wrong with the commode. And so I watched the YouTube video on how to work it. I don't know what I would do without that. I'd probably call Mike. And he'd probably have to come over and say, okay, watch. (laughs) This is how you do this. What a toilet auger is, it's a long pole that has a a thinner pole in it and a long snake. And you push this snake... And twist it and, and it spins and basically augers like drills out whatever the obstruction is in the plumbing. It's a very useful thing and if, if you like if all you've got in your arsenal is a plunger let me introduce you to the closet auger. It's fantastic. But um, plunger wasn't working and something was definitely different about this situation so I got and learned about how to use this thing and I was really working it and I'd never used one before. So you don't know what it's supposed to be like. So I'm like, it is really supposed to be this hard. And I was spinning this thing and it's a spring. It's a long steel spring basically. And so it'll spring up when you twist it. And I had it all twisted up and it would, it would get where I couldn't. And then, it, and then I'd like my hand would slip and it go spin back on me. And I'm like, what is, what are we up against <laughs> this thing? It was a walkie talkie. <laughs> um, eventually I I the reason I know that is because I had to remove the entire commode you get started in the bathroom you got to finish right you got to finish your what you started right? that's how you end up with a ten thousand dollar bathroom project because you're fixing a tile behind the commode so I end up with the you know the tank off you know, little screws under the tank to pull the tank off, and uh, you're like, "Well, that sounds like a long time." It really was. The illustration was almost as long as the event, and and so I had to remove the entire commode. If have you ever have you guys ever pulled a commode out before? Off of you know, there's a wax seal. That I got to start over with that. And all that stuff. You're like, "Pastor, we're pretty close to sewage." I'm like, "Yeah," and you are too. Every day, at least once, and so um, this thing is off everything's dry, everything's, you know, we're cleaning up as we go, and it's still not until I flip the the bottom half of the commode upside down and shake it that the walkie-talkie falls out. And uh, I learned a lot about forgiveness that day, and um, and no, I did not flush that walkie-talkie, And I had not trained anyone to flush that walkie talkie. And so this was all bonus. Um, Anyway, we all have problems with these things. And this is a part of life that we don't like to talk about. This word scubula, excrement. But when someone brings it up, we'd like to move on in the conversation. I get that. I want you to see what Paul does with his great record of personal attainments He says, it's all scubula. I regard all things to be lost on account of the surpassing greatness. A participle used as a substantive. The surpassing is the ver, is the the thing that's surpassing. And so we translate this word, echo, as the surpassing greatness because of the way Paul uses it. And what's the surpassing greatness? There is nothing greater than knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, on account of whom, Jesus, I've lost all things, and I regard to be scuba, so that I may gain Christ. Everything is basically dung. The net notes on this word "scuba say, the word translated dung was often used in Greek as a vulgar term for fecal matter. As such, it would most likely have had a certain shock value for the readers. This may well be Paul's meaning here, especially since the content is about what the flesh produces let's get off our high horse and recognize what we do when we boast in anything but the Lord we're little kids playing with something we should never really be touching and if you feel dirty when we think of it that way that's how you're supposed to feel from what Paul says moreover I regard all things to be loss. Say me on everything is loss because of the surpassing greatness of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord on account of whom I've suffered the loss of all things. Woe to us. If we aren't with Paul having lost everything. Now, this is what we mean when we sing, let goods and kindred go this mortal life. Also it doesn't mean that you're walking around and, in a sack and you've defaulted on your mortgage and everything's been repoed. That's not what this means. It means that everything else that might shadow away from this focus, I reject. And I regard it. That's all things to be scuba so that I may gain Christ. There is a loss and a gain in this calculation. And this sounds just like the Lord Jesus when he says, the last will be first and the first will be last. Those who save their lives will lose them and those who lose their lives for my sake will find them. It's Jesus teaching on there's nothing but me. Everything is done except the gaining of Christ and so that I may be found in him. I want to gain him and I want to be found in him. These are our greatest objectives. And this is what being found in him looks like, not having my own righteousness from the law, but the righteousness through faith in Christ. That is the righteousness from God upon the basis of faith. Christians, we're rehearsing things that you have. We're talking about what you already have. And this is what we do. We're sitting there with everything and we disregard it and then worry about scuba. This is the attitude adjustment and this is the ground wire. You want to press on in Christ, then you need to let it all go. genitive absolute construction to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings because you're being conformed to his death what do we want christians what do you want paul just told you what to want it's awesome what do we want we want to be found in him we want to have the righteousness of God. We want to know Christ. We want to know the power of his resurrection. We want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. We want to be conformed to his death. These are a list of things that properly wanted and also recognizing you have give you a sense of self. This is who you are in Christ. I'm not just somebody that has trusted in him and, you know, I struggle here and there. I'm somebody that For me to live as Christ and die as gain. Someone who can rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. This is Christian privilege. hear a lot about privilege lately. I like to tweak it all the time. You know who's privileged to have this? Anybody who believes in Jesus as a savior and then pays attention to what the apostles have given us. By the way, why did I say the apostles? I was just reading Jesus' words. In the sermon why do i say the apostles cuz you and i have none of jesus words except the apostles and their associates wrote them down i was just giving you what matthew was preaching in the words of jesus now we're hearing it from paul this is the christian life and it is the christian life of paul where jesus just as he said in the gospels it's all about me paul says it's all about him if somehow i may attain unto the out resurrection of the dead the one time this word is used in the new testament ex ex-onastasis. exonastasis usually it's anastasis resurrection this is ex-honestasis. and i don't know why he talks about this except to say that there is for the church a translation and for some it will be a rising from the dead and for others it will be a removing from the living to be resurrected or translated into resurrection body. May well be that the out resurrection is a reference to what we call the rapture because that's when the church is resurrected at the rapture. But it isn't the same word as anastasis or resurrection, it's translated resurrection in your Bible. But I do highlight it because it's the only time we have it here. I want to get to the resurrection. When's the last time you thought about the goal for my life is to get to the resurrection. I know all of you um, grace oriented believers have figured out that you have life because you have Christ and that no one can take you from his hand so that the resurrection is part of your package of inheritance assets that cannot be removed from you. And that's true. But are you thinking about living your life toward the resurrection? Because at the resurrection is the judgment seat of Christ. So how you'll arrive there has everything to do with how you live right now. Yes, you're going to get there, but in what condition? My prayer for you is that it won't be so as through fire in 1 Corinthians 3. Not that I've already laid hold, lombano, to lay hold of, to grasp, to receive. Not that I've already gotten what I'm talking about, or that I've already become teliao uh, tele- uh, tele- uh, tele- uh, that I've already become mature or complete or perfect, but I press on the so that I may also grasp that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus is really complicated in Matthew six. Paul is really complicated in Philippians three twelve. Listen to what he says. I press on so that I may grasp that for which I was grabbed hold of by Christ. Okay. Jesus grabbed me because he wants me to get this thing that he's telling me to reach for. So he grabbed me and he's saying, now go get this. (laughs) And that's what that means. That's what that construction means. And boy, is it fun to translate. I press on so that I may also grasp that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have laid hold. But one thing I do by forgetting the things behind, by straining forward to reach the things ahead, According to the standard of the goal, I press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is he talking about? Pressing on. What is he talking about? I'm just, you know, keeping the faith. I'm listening to the word, taking notes. What's he talking about? Pressing on. What's Philippians about? He's talking about the fellowship with God and the ministry of the gospel. And the pressing on is the work that he's been called to do. The ground floor of this Christian mission is for me to live as Christ and die as gain. And that everything that you could claim about me that is not Christ is, is rubbish, is it. Is it's all about him. And now my life is on mission. By forgetting the things behind, he says, hey, Joey, see how that works? It's like... A, a big picture in picture by forgetting the things behind and by straining forward to reach the things ahead. These are participles that are um, meant to modify the main verb. I press on according to the standard of the goal, there is the goal and it's not my goal. It's not what I want it to be. It's what God says it is according to the standard of the goal, which is to be pleasing to Christ, which is to do what he wants In context, it's in the work. According to the standard of the goal, I press on. I press on. Main verb that is being modified by forgetting the things behind and straining forward to reach the things ahead. Now, I told you, this passage is so encouraging to us when we read through. It's so encouraging to say, you know, the past is the past. And my failures are the past. And they don't mean I fail in the present. But if I focus on the past too much, then I may well fail in the present. And I can't really get hold of the future because the future is just made of the present, you know, as it's coming. And, I, you know, all I've got is right now. So I just leave that stuff in the back, in the past. What is Paul talking about? The things behind. In context, he's talking about the scubala. He's talking about all the things that he could claim that make him awesome that are not Christ. And he is a standout. He is a, a who's who in his generation. And who cares? He's got Christ just let it go. Look at Jesus. He is your destiny. Look at the mission he's got for you. That's his present expectation. How he evaluates you in the judgment seat of Christ has everything to do with what you do right now. So I press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now what, what about the things behind? He persecuted the church. He's got all his sins. He's got all his stuff. People, people agonize over, does he mean before he was a Christian or sins that he's committed after a Christian? Now, why are we worried about that? Because if you're like me, almost all the sins you've ever committed were committed as Christian because you were a Christian from a very early age. He's talking about being on mission and anything in the past, let it go. You've got to move forward. Because the things that are stretching, that I'm stretching forward, that are ahead are gaining Christ and the resurrection and how he evaluates me at that resurrection. It's very much on Paul's mind, what Jesus says at the resurrection. Therefore, as many as are mature, teleoi, as many as are mature, let us think this way. He doesn't say y'all think this way. He says, let us think this way. Now, maybe your Bible says perfect or complete, and those are possible meanings of this word, but it doesn't make sense in context. He's talking about people that are uh, the Philippians that are giving sacrificially and promoting the gospel, and they're on mission, and they understand, yes, I never claim that I've arrived, and yet I continue to advance because there's coming a time when I will arrive, and that's face-to-face with Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. So as many as are mature, let us think this way, and if you are of any other thinking. God will reveal this to you also. What's Philippians about? It's about the fellowship and the ministry of the gospel. What's the Christian life about? It's about fellowship with God and the ministry of the gospel. Well, but I mean, I've got this whole prior understanding. Well, let let the things behind go behind. Stretch forward to the things that are ahead. Because you need to press on. Because you have... a a, a rendezvous with destiny at the judgment seat of Christ what's the ground wire what makes this work letting go any claim I have any boast and rejoicing only in Jesus Christ but that would mean that all the yeah whatever you think that would mean that you would suffer loss you need to get through that because the loss that you're suffering is the loss of rewards (laughs) Because any, anything that you're holding on to that you don't say for me to live as Christ is taking your joy. It's stealing your spiritual life. Whether well, our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Close the service this morning for anyone who may hear, be here without eternal life, without hope. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ paid for your sins on the cross whether you know that or not, whether you understand that or not, that's the message and that's his love toward you. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So to receive the love of God is to trust, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ as my savior. He died for my sins on the cross. It is childlike faith to say that the problem I have where I'm separated from God, and therefore dead in my trespasses and sins can only be solved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I trust only in him, only in what he's done. Father, the only hope we have is that precious blood of your son at Calvary, where he paid for our sins on the cross. We thank you for eternal life. We thank you for the privilege of being on mission and ask for opportunities to witness for your son. Father, put us in a frame of mind every day where we're available to you and open and compassionate toward those surrounding us who are deceived. Father, let us not be deceived, but compassionate. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.